Good evening. For those of you that don't know me online or here in the room, my name is Malcolm Duncan and I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald. I wonder what you see when you look at me. It's one of those funny questions that can seem a bit unusual. Do you uh, see somebody who is confident or somebody who isn't confident? Do you see somebody who's an extrovert or an introvert? Do you see somebody who is a glass half full person? Or do you see somebody who is a glass, glass half empty person? Or maybe a glass is obliterated kind of person? I'm not an extrovert. Most people think I am. And I'm not very confident. Uh, most people think that I am. And I'm not really necessarily, I don't know whether I'm a glass half full or a glass half empty person. I, I, I'm not sure about the glass at all. But over the years, I think in a genuine way, I've learned that some of those things aren't the most important thing. What I do know is that I'm loved by God. That I'm cherished by Him. That I'm accepted. That I have an identity and a meaning and a purpose that flows from His grace toward me, which is an unalterable grace. So whatever confidence or extrovertness or optimism I have, I think it is rooted in who I understand God to be. And I'd like to talk to you about that for a few minutes tonight. I'm so grateful to Mark. I don't know where he's gone. Oh, there he is, hiding at the back. Mark, you're called to this. And I'm thankful to God for your honesty and vulnerability. They're two hallmarks of leadership. Would you mind turning in the Bible, please, with me to a story where somebody else wondered whether or not they could do what God was asking them to do? Find in Exodus chapter 34. I'll paint the context for you so that you can get it. Moses has been called by God to lead the people of um, Israel into the promised land. The journey is well and truly underway when he has one of a number of crises of confidence. Moses has several. Those of you that have experienced that can say, thank God. But he basically says to God, unless you go with me, I'm not leaving here. Unless your hand is upon me, I'm not moving from this place. And God chooses to reveal his name 
to Moses. Which is remarkable, not his title, his name. I'd like to read it with you. Exodus chapter 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The word generation actually isn't in Hebrew. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. In verse 5 and verse 6, and at several other points through this passage, if you have a Bible open in front of you, whatever version it might be, you will notice that the word Lord, L-O-R-D, is spelt with small capitals. That is to distinguish it from other Hebrew words that are translated Lord in the Old Testament. Because this four-letter word is a very specific translation of God's name. And it's the word Yahweh. It's very hard to translate, actually. It's first used, formally, in Genesis chapter 15. In the call of Abraham, when God is instructing the father of Islam and Judaism and Christianity about how to follow him. And God is described in Genesis 15 as Yahweh. The last time that it is used, if you have a Bible, is Genesis, is um, Revelation chapter 22. The very last verse, chapter of the Bible. Not the last verse, but almost. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. 
It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am, in that passage, is Yahweh, the Greek equivalent, which is ego eimi. I'll come to that later. When Moses was called by God to follow him, the story is told in the book of Exodus, particularly in chapter 3. And in verse 14, as God begins this relational journey with Moses, he uses his name again. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the story of the Exodus, throughout the story of the people of God, this name becomes a profoundly important thing to Moses as he tries to work out how he is to follow this God who has named himself. If I asked you tonight to give God a name, what name would you give him? Harsh, holy, judge, angry, violent, peaceable, distant. Close, listening, deaf, the fact that God reveals himself to Moses isn't just a part of a story, it's part of God's character. He wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know his name. This idea, this word Yahweh, is actually difficult to translate and it's difficult to say. In the Hebrew language, there are no vowels, only consonants. The vial system was added many, many years later, close to the time of Ezra, actually, who probably is responsible for collating much of the Old Testament literature. And that system of vial addition to the words in Hebrew was quite complicated and quite complex. And they didn't know how to vial Yahweh. They didn't know what they should put in. So those of you that have come from churches that are used to using the word Jehovah or Yehovah um, may or may not be aware that that word Jehovah or Yehovah comes from the consonants of Yahweh and the, and the, um, the, the, the vowels from another word for Lord, Adonai. 
So the vowels and the consonants are interposed. So you get Yehovah, which becomes Jehovah in transliterated English. It's not a name that's found in the Bible. The word Yahweh is difficult to say. Some modern Hebrew linguists think that it should be Yehei. Others think it be, should be Yocho or Yacha or Yeche. The closest that people can get to trying to understand how it should actually be pronounced before we get to what it means is simply It is the sound of a breath. Which means every time you breathe, you are pronouncing the name of God. I particularly like that when I'm talking to people who are telling me again and again and again how they don't believe in God. Not in a dismissive way, but in a compassionate way. When I listen carefully, with every breath, they are pronouncing his name. As are you. In the words of one American theologian a few years ago, does life begin when we can breathe out the name of God and end when we can no longer do it? That's another sermon for another time. But what does this name mean? What does Yahweh mean? It's almost impossible to translate. Lots of people have tried. I am who I am. Except it's not necessarily written in the same kind of tensing as we would use in modern English. I will always be who I will always be. I have always been who I have always been. Always. Eternally the same. All of those phrases are ways of trying to translate this name. Not a title, a name. But what we have in Exodus 34 is a man who is uncertain about his calling, trying to work out how he lives well and leads a group of people that he never asked to lead. And God tells him, you can do it when you know who I am. And reveals his name. Moses' confidence didn't lie in himself. Moses' confidence lay in who God was. My confidence as a pastor doesn't lie in myself. It lies in who I understand God to be. But it's more than that for me. My confidence as a husband lies in who God is. My confidence as a father, as a brother, as a friend, as a leader, doesn't lie in my ability. Because that's not where our confidence should ever lie. It lies in who God has revealed himself to be. The unchanging one. The ever-living one. The always-present one.
in classical theology, there are three or four sets of descriptions used about God. They're sometimes called the omnis, not the omniplex, that's a different thing. That God is omnipresent, he's always present. Unlike Satan, for example, who can only ever be in one place at a time. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, unlike his enemies, who are not. And he is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows you at your worst and he knows you at your best. He knows you at your height and he knows you at your depth. And in all of those things, he is unchanging. Perhaps what will make Mark McGookin a good deacon is what made Moses a good leader and might make me a good pastor. Relying on God. Perhaps that will make a difference in your marriage tonight. Or in your relationship with your kids. Perhaps tomorrow when you go to work and you think, I can't do this. Remembering that God can do it through you will make the difference. Because maybe like me, people make assumptions about you. One of the greatest challenges that I face in my life, my wife is my greatest help in this, is that I recognize that God has given me, I talk to my friend Pip about it too sometimes, a gift of preaching. And if you're not careful, you can end up feeling commodified by your gifts. We need a preacher, we'll wheel out Malcolm. But if you're not careful when you're wheeled out to lead or you're wheeled out to preach or you're wheeled out to pastor or you're wheeled out to answer people's problems and difficulties, you can end up allowing your identity to flow out of what you're doing rather than out of who God is. The safest place to live as a human being, the most prosperous place to live, is not in your definition of yourself. It's in God's definition of you. So when we define ourselves according to what other people think or what our culture says or what somebody else tells us, then we're in danger of making wrong definitions. Let me give you an example. You make a mistake. Maybe you've made more than one. There's a world of difference between defining yourself as a failure and recognizing that God can use you. Have you failed? Yes. Is your name failure? No. I spent the first three decades of my life not being called by my name by somebody that I loved. I thought my name was stupid because that's what I got called. But that's not my name. That's not my identity. My identity flows out of what God has said about me. And the reason that I can believe that is because God has revealed something of his identity to us through his word. And it doesn't change. Look at Exodus chapter 34 again. 
And by the way, some people describe this passage, this description of God's name. I am the Lord, the Lord gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who delights to forgive his children and all that follows from that. The most quoted and the most often used description of God in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. It's littered across the Psalms. Psalm 86, verse 15. Psalm 103. Psalm 111, verse 4. Psalm 112, verse 4. Psalm 145, verse 8. Psalm 32, verse 18. I think that's Dennis trying to get in. <laughs> Joel 2, 13. Jonah 4, 2. Nahum 1, 3. Nehemiah 9, 17 and 31. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. And they're only the exact, they're, they're just the direct quotations of this. Take the ideas of love and faithfulness and compassion and gentleness and mercy and I'd suggest that it would be hard to find a chapter in the Bible that doesn't somehow allude to this from beginning to end this book is infused with the name of God and the description that we are given in this passage of God the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh a merciful and gracious God that is what God is in his character. That's what he's like. Merciful. Gracious. Kind. They are, to use a posh phrase with you, ontological realities. They are at the very heart of what God is like. Cut them down the middle, and that's what it would say. It's never going to change. Have you ever been to Blackpool or Morecambe or County or, or New, Newcastle or Malisle if they still sell rock and Malisle? When I was a wee boy, they sold rock and Malisle out of a yellow ice cream thing as you came down the road on the left just opposite the bingo hall. And when you bit the rock in the middle, it would say something through it. If you cut God down the middle, it would say mercy. And it would say grace. If they are his ontological realities, then they are evidenced to us in his behavior. And his behavior is described in the next verse, or the next part of this verse, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me ask those of you that are Christians here for a moment something. How many times do you think God could have rebuked you and didn't? How many situations in your life have you been grateful that God is gracious? If I had a black marker and a whiteboard behind me and I said, I'm going to write on here everything that God knows about you. Let's have a five minute break. I wonder how many of us would come back into the room. You see, his character and his name is not just something that we relate to conceptually. You cling to it. 
Not just those that are non-Christians. We Christians cling to this. He is patient. He's kind. He's compassionate. His love is reliable and dependable. What he says, he does. What he is, he does. What he does, he is. There's no contradiction. There's no contradistinction. There's no crisis of identity. There's no telling you one thing and doing another. God is merciful and gracious. I entitled this message, A Name That Can Be Trusted. I don't care where you've come from tonight. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care how far you feel you have fallen. There is hope as long as there is God. And he has the capacity to reach into our souls and give us a fresh start. Do not define yourself by your mistakes or by your achievements. Define yourself by what God is like and what he says of you. Keeping steadfast love, verse 7, for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What if God is here tonight by the power of his spirit to say to you, I can forgive that. I can carry that burden. I can wash away that regret. You don't think you're good enough? I'm good enough. What if he brought you here online or into this room for you to be reminded that actually confidence in yourself is not the most important thing? Confidence in God is the most important thing. The way people teach the Bible is called exegesis. It means that you take a verse and you explain it. I can't stop halfway through this verse. This is the tough bit. Yet by no means clearing the guilty. But visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The word generation is not there in Hebrew. Don't think that God's graciousness and compassion and mercy means that he doesn't care what you've done. That would be a misrepresentation of what the Bible teaches. He cares profoundly. He is deeply interested in your life, in the moral and ethical choices that you are making, in your understanding of yourself. And they don't go unpunished. I grew up in a family that was less than ideal. I understand how the behavior of a father can affect a son. I understand how patterned behavior can be carried into your understanding of yourself. Those of you that are teachers will see it all the time. You'll see children in your class 
behaving in certain ways, and they're behaving in certain ways either because they've been conditioned to behave like, behave like that, or they believe that that's an acceptable way to behave. Don't ever think that your actions, your priorities, your morals, and your ethics stop with you. That's a very fashionable post-truth, post-modern idea, but it doesn't work. Too often, our children carry the scars of our choices. And they carry the marks of our behaviours. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. If you're not a parent, you may not have. But there is, I think, a moment in every... I'm a dad, I'm not a mum. But there is a moment in every father's life where he does something. And then he thinks, oh my goodness. I'm just like my dad. That isn't always a good thing. Because we recognize in ourselves behaviors that we would want to change. Attitudes and actions that we would want to undo. And God sees those things too. What does it mean in Exodus 34, 7 when he says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he by no means clears the guilty? but visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There are modern readers that will try to make that sound like God isn't really concerned about sin. All he's concerned about is eradicating it. But actually let the text stand because there's a more profound meaning that lies under it when you read it in the context of the whole Bible. It means this, God will deal with sin. And you want them to. You might say, no, I don't. No, what you mean is you don't want God to deal with your sin. But you want God to deal with sin because you want dictators to be held to account. You want the Holocaust to be atoned for. You want men and women who have exploited people across the world not to get away with it. You want God to be just and holy and true when you see things happening in the world that you don't agree with it's only when it comes to ourselves that we want them not to be like that but for God to be just for God to be true and for God to be um, faithful to himself for the first half of this verse to be correct the second verse second half of it also has to be correct he has to deal with it he has to deal with wrong behaviour He has to deal with those things in our lives and in our cultures that we pass on to our children so that they can be weeded out and removed eventually and done away with forever. And that's where the last part of what I want to say to you comes in. It's not very complicated. It's very straightforward. Tomorrow is the 31st birthday of my nephew, who committed suicide in November 2014. My sister's birthday was last Monday. This is just a terrible week. And when somebody like 
a 40-year-old woman from television called Caroline Fleck commits suicide. Most of us think that is awful. It's such a heartbreaking waste of life. But when suicide has knocked on your door and you hear that story, you go all the way back to the day that your nephew died or your son or your brother-in-law. In my case, three suicides and two sudden deaths in 18 months. And you relive them. And it brings it all back. So in those moments, why do I not say Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh? Because that's not what I pray. In those moments when I don't know what to pray, I do use a name. I use the name Jesus. And repeatedly and slowly, I say into my family and into my soul, Jesus. 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 And as I do that, something changes in me. Because I'm speaking the fullest and the clearest and the most compassionate name of God I have ever encountered. His name means God saves. His name means God rescues. In the Old Testament, the language around Israel, the nation that are God's people, is very interesting. But on several occasions, the whole nation is referred to as God's son. So what if Exodus 34 points beyond the moment that Moses is in and says, I will visit sin to the third and the fourth. And it looks all the way forward to a moment in time and history when God takes the sin of every generation of Israel and the world and because of his love and his compassion places it on his son so that you could know him as Yahweh. What if at the heart of the character of God there is a revelation of someone who loves you so much that he will pursue you generation after generation. He will pursue people and place all of the wrong of the world. Not upon a son who is fighting him. Not upon a son who is resistant to him. This isn't, in the words of one modern British theologian, cosmic child abuse. Nothing could be further from the truth. This isn't God being exploitative or manipulative. This is God in his very essence 
being committed to finding a pathway for you out of your despair, out of your breakages, out of your heartbreak and your sorrow and your pain. And it requires God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to be so in unity on this, so united and together, that the plan that they embark upon and the commitment that they make will be unbreakable. So the Son is willing to carry your shame and sin and mistakes. The Father is willing to place them upon him. The Spirit is willing to enable them to do that so that you and I could sit one night in February 2020 and realize that God is not distant. That he doesn't exist somewhere else. That I don't need to be perfect. That I don't need to have confidence in myself. I don't need to have all of the answers. I find hope in God who is gracious and compassionate. And when, around 300 years before the birth of Christ, they began the process of trying to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, for lots of reasons I'll tell you another night about, they had to come up with a, a phrase that captured the name Yahweh. It needed to be emphatic, it needed to be strong, it needed to be distinctive, because in the end, the verb I am is quite a popular verb. So they came up with a phrase, ego a me, I am who I am. It's a phrase that is distinct. It's a theological phrase. It's a phrase with huge meaning. It's a profoundly important phrase. So when they wrote the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek, every time they saw Yahweh, every time you see Lord, L-O-R-D, with capitals in your Bible, in the Greek version of that, it is ego me. And Jesus uses that phrase seven times in the Gospel of John. Intentionally, deliberately, and clearly. He places himself in the same identity as the identity that encountered Moses. Ego me, seven times. I am the bread of life, John 16, 35. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the door, John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd, John 10, verses 14 and 11. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the vine, John 15, 1. When the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden in John chapter 18, as they approached him, he used the phrase again, I am. And the power of what he said was so strong that those that had come to arrest him and kill him fell over. And this Jesus offers us hope and life. He is our sustainer, the bread of life. He is our hope, the light of the world. He is our welcome when we do not know where to go. He is our safety when we have no safety in ourselves. He is the door. He is our protection, our good shepherd. He is the conqueror of our greatest fear, death, because he is the resurrection. He is the center of the universe 
the center of all things, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Everything revolves around him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the source that sustains us in the worst drought and in the sharpest storms because he is our vine. Ego in me. Some years later, when Paul was trying to articulate this, he said to the church in Colossae, Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He said, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him and you are complete in him. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he reminded them that God was, Christ was at the center of all things. When he wrote to the Romans, he says, in him, using a modern port, we live and we breathe and we have our meaning. Here's the name that you can trust above every other name, Jesus. Here's the one that will rescue you from your sin, Jesus. He's the one that can lift your shame from your shoulders and give you new dignity, Jesus. Here's the one that can deal with your insecurities. Jesus, who can deal with your fears. Jesus, who can mend your broken heart. Jesus, who can carry you through the darkest nights. Jesus, who will stand with you at gravesides. Jesus, who will hold you when you don't have the strength to stand. Jesus, who when you think you are not called and are not equipped and cannot do it, Jesus gives you the courage. I do not preach here because I have confidence in myself. If you realized how little confidence I had in myself, you would understand how important this is to me. I do not determine my worth. I don't determine my value. I don't determine my significance. I don't determine my life. The great I am determines me. The one who created all things and will bring all things together determines Malcolm Duncan. And he determines you when you have been restricted by illness, when those that you love look at you and say, I remember you before that accident. I remember you before that stroke. I remember you before that condition. God always sees you as you are. When the world defines you as a wheelchair user, God defines you as uniquely made by him. When the world looks at you and says you're a failure or you're a mistake or you're an accident or you're stupid. God says, I am who I am and I define you differently. I define you as loved. I define you as held. I define you as precious. I define you as known. Because I am who I am. You can be who I made you. I encourage you tonight as the band come back. Not to live out of an identity that your culture has given you. Not even to live out of the identity that you've given yourself. Turn down the voices around you. That consistently tell you how useless you might be. For some of you, that might be the voice in your own heads that is loudest. Turn it down. How do I do that, Pastor Malcolm? Turn God's voice up. Focus on him. You are loved 
where you are. He has the capacity to set you free from all wrong understandings of your life right now. And he is here. Just as he was with Moses. Moses. 